Well, there are a lot of complex questions that we have to navigate ethically and personally as we go through life and try to be good people or do what uh, we think we should be doing as followers of Jesus. Um, I think at some point all of us will have to deal with one of the most complex questions you will ever encounter in, in life, which is when someone invites you over for a meal and says, don't bring anything, what is it that you actually need to bring? That sends shivers down your spine just to think about it, doesn't it? Don't bring anything. Okay. And so I'm sure you'll be have lots of great discussions about that afterwards now and all your thoughts and wisdom. I appreciate it. Okay. Now, our story today from the Gospel has one of the most famous meals in the Bible where Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of over 5,000 people who have come to hear his teaching uh, and often to be healed as well. And they have brought nothing to this meal. So we're going to think a bit more about that later and what that means. But the, uh, let's think first, how do we get to this story in Luke? So I want to recap just where we've come through in this series so far. We've been looking at Luke the whole year so far. So in summary, I think the Gospel of Luke, as we've seen again and again as we look at the different stories about Jesus, it's a story that Luke is telling us about who Jesus is and what he did. And this story is about Jesus as in the process of bringing in, proclaiming and showing that God is at work in the world through him. That through Jesus, there's this new reality of God's presence at here, at work in the world now. A presence that is transforming the world. It's bringing salvation to people, forgiveness, healing and justice wherever it goes. And that's what the gospel means, is good news about what God is doing through Jesus. And as Luke's gospel unfolds, Jesus has gradually revealed to his disciples more and more about who he is and about how they are going to be involved in spreading this good news. And he's taught them more and more about what their experience of God's presence is going to be, what he calls the kingdom of God. And so I want to go back again today as we start to one of the core themes that we've looked at in Luke, which is to understand more deeply there's this idea called the kingdom of God and what it actually means when Jesus is preaching it. And my fundamental definition, which I try to repeat every time I talk about it, and it, which is based on the whole New Testament, which discusses this topic, is that I believe the kingdom of God, as Jesus described it, it's really a way of talking about the tangible presence of the Spirit of God in every aspect of the world and our lives. So it's the tangible experience of God's Spirit in every aspect of our lives. So the kingdom of God is not really a political reality as such. It's actually a spiritual reality and it permeates every part of creation. And we see in the gospel that the more we're open to it, the more we allow God to be working in our lives, the more we cooperate with God's spirit, the more we see it in concrete ways manifesting around us, the kingdom of God. And I think that this particular topic then of how we experience the kingdom of God, it's so robust and so rich and it brings out so many different aspects for us. What it really means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to see God at work in every aspect of our lives? And I believe that the more that we understand the kingdom and what it is and what our relationship is to it, the deeper and more satisfying and exciting our Christian lives are going to be. So that's why I've enjoyed Luke and his gospel. And today, these two sections of our reading, I think, give us more insight into the kingdom of God and what it means to be part of it. And I think there are two questions that we might find answers to in these two major stories in these two parts of our reading. So there's two questions. The first is, what does it mean 
for the kingdom of God to be a kingdom? What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be a kingdom? And secondly, what do we need to bring with us in order to experience this kingdom? What do we need to bring in order to experience the kingdom? So I think there are two obvious parts to our reading, as you can hear. The first is a story about Jesus sending out his apostles on a local mission trip, essentially. Uh, they go around to, to the surrounding villages, and it describes what happens at the time. The, the disciples went out to tell people about the kingdom, to heal, and to deliver them from demons, it says. And that story is then interrupted by a little story about Herod and what he was doing. He was interested in what was happening at the time. And the second part of the story is the feeding of, well, they call the feeding of the 5,000, but it's really, I call the feeding of the crowd because it was how many people there were there. And so to my reading, the main part of the the main point of this first part, you know, verses 1 to 11, where Jesus talks about his disciples going on this mission trip, is to demonstrate to us or to share with us as we read that Jesus is actually a genuine king of this kingdom of God and he's able to give his disciples a real and legitimate commission to go out and be agents of God's kingdom on his behalf. So it says the disciples were taught by Jesus of what it meant to be part of the kingdom and then were empowered by him to do what Jesus did himself. And that of course becomes a major theme later in the Gospels and in the book of Acts which Luke also wrote. What is the mission of the church that Jesus gives to his people? But here, in this story, we have a foundation of that in Jesus' actions and words towards the 12 disciples and apostles. So as we see in verses 1 to 2, it says, When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what are they doing, the 12? Well, they're going out and, we can, and they're sharing about the kingdom of God in words, and they're demonstrating it in practice through healing and through delivering people from evil. And that's what Jesus has been doing himself, and he continues to do it, as we see in verses 10 to 11. But I just think today, for me, the significant thing here is the words that Jesus uses for what he is giving them. He talks about, I giving you power and authority. So he gave, gives them power and authority. So he gives them the power, it says, to drive out demons, the power to heal, and he gives them the authority to do it and the authority to talk about it and to, to share Jesus. And I think this is really important, the idea that Jesus here is sharing power and authority with his disciples. It's important for us understanding the kingdom of God as a kingdom. Because, as we might know, power and authority, that's an intrinsic part of how a kingdom works. A properly ruled kingdom has power and authority that's used to extend the rule and the will of the king. So if, if the king gives you authority, you have the right to act on behalf of him and to tell people to do things which they need to do. Your words and your decisions are legitimate. They carry weight. Not just anyone can do it. You have to have authority from the king. And of course, if you have authority, then it needs to be backed up with the power to get things done the ability to carry out the words, and that's something else that the king can provide. It is actually a problem in a kingdom or in any political uh, setup when people have power to do something but don't have the authority to do it. So that's lawlessness. You know, you just do what you want. You're not doing, you don't have authority to do it. It's also a problem when someone has authority but doesn't have the power to wield it. It means your words are empty. People don't do what you say. 
So Jesus is demonstrating by giving both his power and his authority to his disciples that the kingdom of God is actually a genuine kingdom in one sense, even if it is one that operates on a far higher plane than the human kingdoms. So when Jesus is explicitly giving his disciples power and authority to do these things, he is guarding the legitimacy of the kingdom of God as coming from God, requiring the power and authority that comes from a connection with Jesus himself in order to participate in. The kingdom of God is a real kingdom. Those who participate in it are given genuine authority to do God's work and genuine power to see it happen. And that's the basis for what the church is those who have been given the power and authority to follow after Jesus and to do what he did. And so, you know, that means the disciples of Jesus, as they went out on their mission, they're not just kind of powerful, psychic people who can heal people or cast out demons just because they can, um, on their whim or a natural ability. They're emissaries of the king, of Jesus, and that's where their power to do those things comes from, Jesus, God himself. And so they'll have real authority in addition to any personal power that they have. So it's important to think that the kingdom of God is a kingdom. It derives authority from God himself and its power to do those things. It's not something that just comes from human power. But it's also important to note that the kingdom of God, we read, doesn't really work like other kingdoms do. Because the main problem with human kingdoms is that power which comes from a king or other leader, is often used coercively in order to enforce the will of the king against the resistance that comes from people and to crush them, crush people who don't have power. But instead of this pattern, we read about the fact that Jesus doesn't send his disciples out with power and authority in order to compel people to believe in him or to make them accept his authority or else like an ordinary king would, would, do, would do. And I think that's why Herod is mentioned here, because Herod is a king who would do that. We read that Herod is worried about Jesus because when Jesus and his disciples go around talking about the kingdom of God, they bring his own legitimacy as a king into question. If Jesus is king, who is Herod? Just a dictator, a tyrant who kills his enemies. So Herod may have power and the will to use it, but with, next to Jesus, he doesn't have authority. It doesn't come from God. His words are not meaningful. So the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching, it's not a kingdom where power is used to crush people. Jesus tells his disciples in verses 3 to 5, you know, don't take anything with you to indicate that you have this power and authority. Don't take any money or special clothes or possessions or anything that makes you look good. Just rely on God and what generous people provide who respond to what the kingdom has to say. And don't impose yourself on these villagers. If, they're not wel if they don't welcome you, just move on. People are free to accept or to reject the gospel and the kingdom of God as they choose. But where they do accept it, there's real power and real authority available to heal and to drive out demons, to change people's lives. So I think what, what does it mean, firstly, for us to be an agent of the kingdom of God today? Well, what the gospel teaches us here is that Jesus has invested his power and authority in ordinary people like us, in an ongoing way for the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world. And it's our role is to take that up and to use it. And that's what we call mission, and that's the basis for what we've been talking about this month. Um, and it's also the basis for what we call the Great Commission, which is a famous passage in Matthew 28, verse 18 and onwards, where Jesus, after his resurrection, gives his disciples again this word. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
So that's a, that's a word to all of us. All of us as Christians are in the same position as the 12 were in, in Luke chapter 9. We're called to be part of this kingdom and to ask for, to receive from Jesus legitimate power and authority to do what we're being asked to do. And he, ha he wants to give that to us so that this gentle, non-coercive kingdom will expand, a kingdom that's about healing and deliverance, a kingdom of good news will expand throughout the world. It's a big commission for us, but something that he gives us the authority and power to carry out. So then what do we need in, to bring to Jesus in order to experience his power? What do we contribute to this kingdom? And that's the second part of our reading from verses 12 to 17 about the miraculous feeding of the crowd. So we segue into this second story now. So in my introduction, I pointed out um, you can go to the next slide, uh, Grant, sorry. Um, in my introduction, I pointed out that a lot of um, dinner introductions that we receive, there's an implied obligation that you should bring something in order to contribute to the meal. And if you don't recognise that, you probably don't get many invitations to dinner. Um, maybe, you know, you bring a drink or you bring a snack or you bring some part of the meal, like a salad, like a minor part. But the idea is that the host will provide the substantial major part of the meal. And you're not technically required to bring anything in order for the meal to happen. But imagine what would happen if you arrived at a meal like that and the host hadn't actually prepared anything at all. And you ask, well, what are we going to eat today? And they go, well, what have you brought? Um, what have you brought along? Your loaf of bread or your cheese and crackers? That's everything that there is. It needs to stretch for everyone. Um, so that's a situation that we find ourselves in the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the crowd. So this crowd has followed Jesus out to the countryside. Um, and as evening comes, the question arises, what are they going to eat for dinner? It becomes a pressing question. And the disciples ask Jesus about this. And I think Ken read it really well. He says to them, well, you give them something to eat. Well, you give them something to eat. Uh, but it turns out the disciples look around and all they've got is five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I'm not great at catering. Um, I tend towards the buy a chicken coleslaw and bread rolls at Coles on the way style of uh, meal preparation. But even I realise that five loaves of bread and two fish are not quite enough for 5,000 men plus their families. Um, but, however, they do sit down them in groups of 50 and Jesus gives thanks for the meal and they distribute it among the people. And lo and behold there is more than enough for everyone. Now this is of course a very famous miracle of Jesus. But what does it mean? This particular miracle has been subject over the years to lots of arguments between people who believe in a supernatural explanation for something like this and those who prefer not to. So the straightforward reading that we, if you read it, is the idea that somehow through his spiritual power, Jesus has created more bread uh, and fish than there were before. So it could be seen, oh, this is a demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God and he has the power to do these things. But some biblical scholars have said over the years, maybe it was in fact a miracle of generosity. The crowd was inspired by the fact that Jesus and his disciples shared their five loaves and two fish with them and they were moved to share some of the food that they brought along with those they were seated with. So the lesson is there's always enough if people are willing to share. Now, that's not a bad lesson. But I think that's an unnecessary reduction of the meaning of the passage, since Luke obviously has no problem with supernatural events and occurrences elsewhere. But however, I do think that is actually probably a better application of the meaning of the miracle than thinking it was just meant to show us that Jesus had particular powers. 
The feeding of the 5,000, I believe, is actually a symbol of the kingdom of God and how it works. The disciples of Jesus, when they come here, they only have a small amount of food. They are inadequate to the task of feeding the crowd that Jesus has brought them. But as they are in the presence of God's king and his kingdom, they are given power and authority to take their small contributions, what they bring, and multiply them among the people that they share them with, and there is enough. If you read the passage carefully, you see that it, when Jesus takes the bread and the fish and gives thanks to God for them, he gives them to the disciples to distribute. And I think the, the idea is the multiplication of that food doesn't happen in Jesus' hands as though he suddenly has amazing pile of bread and fish in front of him. The multiplication of it happens in the hands of the disciples as they distribute it to the people who are in the crowd. So it is in fact their generous sharing of the little that they had that's the basis for this miracle of abundance which Jesus has asked them to do. And so I, that's why I think we can see parallels with the other story that we saw earlier. So Jesus in doing getting what, he get, what needs to be done done, he places power and authority in the hands of his disciples as they go out and share what he's given them and that multiplies into healing and deliverance and, share, and what people need. Many, many more people. So the question is, what do we need to bring in order to experience the kingdom of God as disciples of Jesus? What do, you know, what, what's our contribution? Well, in one sense, of course, we don't need to bring anything. It's not a legal requirement that we bring anything to Jesus any more than we need to bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party that we go to. But in a deeper sense, what we actually need to bring, I think this was, is says, well, whatever you can, whatever you have, you bring it. The feeding of the 5,000 shows that whatever we can bring or whatever we have is enough for Jesus to get his purposes fulfilled. He can use it. It's a bit daunting when we think about it to consider the call for the disciples of Jesus to be on a mission for the kingdom of God throughout the whole world. What do we have? That, what can we bring that would possibly be sufficient for that task? But, in fact, all we're asked to bring is whatever we have, however little that might be, a few loaves of bread or fish, our limited time, our limited energy, our limited gifts, the skills and power that we actually have. In the kingdom of God, though, that is enough. That is enough. So the lesson today, I think, is that in the kingdom of God, whatever you bring is enough. And in fact, it's more than enough for Jesus to multiply into his kingdom. That's good news. So let's spend some time in prayer and reflect on that today. We thank you, Lord, that the mission you give us is one where we have from you all we need, the power and authority to carry out your word. We pray that you would pour out upon us again today the power and authority to see evil uh, pushed back, to see people come to know you and to see people healed. And I pray that that would come, up, come upon us as we go out. I pray that you would take our small contributions, whatever we bring to you in our hearts, our intentions, our gifts and our abilities, and multiply them for your kingdom. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. <laughs>